This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Please turn in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, we're continuing our series in the book of Acts. Today we'll be in verses 32 through 43. We're going to begin by reading a text we looked at a couple weeks ago, verse 31, to set the context. This is God's Word. It's authoritative. Thank you, Steve. Verse 31. So, the church, this is right after the transition with Saul's conversion, so his persecution has been ended by the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And Luke says, so, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now, our text today, verse 32, as Peter, so we've transitioned from Saul, Paul, to Peter now. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Verse 36, and now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. And she was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please, come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. And Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. And then calling the saints and widows, 
He presented her alive. (laughs) And it became known, I bet it did, throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. This is God's word. And he has something to accomplish in our midst. Each and every Sunday when we turn our attention, we try to focus our attention on this text. I I think he's chosen this text for this Sunday. He wants us to walk in the fear of the Lord. So we see in verse 31, they were, the church was walking in the fear of the Lord, and now we're getting a picture of this from Luke. This is, this is what it means to live your life in the fear of the Lord, to turn to the Lord, to believe in the Lord, to honor Him. And that's what we want to do. This is a, a new section and, and now he, Luke, the author of Acts, is focusing on Peter's apostolic ministry. Apostles uniquely served the risen Lord Jesus Christ. It's important we don't forget that. In his gospel, in Luke chapter 6, Luke recorded that Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. This is Jesus, and when he... When day came, he called his disciples, and he chose 12, and he named them apostles. So Jesus, before he chose out of his disciples, his apostles, he spent all night in prayer. These apostles are important. And one of them, one of those disciples chosen was Peter. Jesus delivered to these apostles the truth, the word, the gospel. And we read so much about in Acts. He gave it to them. They received it from him, and he gave them authority. And Peter is is one of these apostles. And Luke is setting up the next big event in Acts. Chapters 10 and 11, we're going to look at the, the conversion of the first Gentile. The first Gentile to come to the Lord, Cornelius. And and Peter is involved, so Luke is bringing Peter back into the story of Acts. And and the point is that God is still working powerfully and blessing Peter's apostolic ministry. Verse 43 says, He stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a tanner. Tanner was considered unclean. They worked with dead animals, but Peter stayed with him in Joppa. That's an important point. Seems like a side note, but he stayed with him. Peter wasn't a Pharisee. He was a fisherman. He wasn't too scrupulous about all these things. He didn't mind staying with Simon the Tanner and all the dead animals laying around. Perfect man for the first Gentile convert. He was bold. He went against what the culture around him thought to serve the Lord. This is all the spirit at work building up the church that we we read about in verse 31. This is the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Note verse 34. Jesus Christ heals you. Jesus Christ, isn't that interesting? It's important. 
the way Peter stated it and the way Luke recorded it. It's important. Jesus Christ heals you. The main character is not Peter. The main event, the most interesting thing, is not the healing of a paralyzed man. It's not even the raising from the dead of a Christian woman. The point is, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, is still at work in his church. He comforts you. He, he gives you peace. He's building up his church. He's advancing the gospel. And many unbelievers in Lydda and the surrounding coastal plain of Sharon turn to Jesus as Lord. He, he healed this man. They turned to him as Lord. He's... He's the master, and they acknowledge his divine authority, creator, redeemer. He's Lord. That's what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord. Yesterday, I'm sure you're aware, there was an annular solar eclipse. It's nicknamed the ring of fire. That, that occurs when the moon is at its farthest point from the earth, so that when it goes between the earth and the sun, it doesn't fully block the sun like a total eclipse, but it, it leaves a ring, annular means a ring, ring-shaped, and there's a, it like blocks, because it's so far from the earth, it doesn't block the whole sun, but it leaves this ring of fire. It's really cool if you see it. We didn't have a perfect glimpse of it. You could partially see it, though. I tried to look yesterday. They, they say it's extremely important not to look directly at the sun during an eclipse. So you're supposed to use these glasses. Didn't stop one of my kids from saying, here, just use three pairs of sunglasses and you can look. And I looked for a second. I think I'm still partially blind from the experience. It didn't work. But it, it's a magnificent, people all over the country, it's amazing how, because we, we know so much about our solar system, we know so much about how the planets move and the sun moves and the moon, and we know exactly where this, where you can see and what you can see. It's incredible. We even today, though, we, we love to look, don't we? We love to observe this. We want to see it. And these kinds of rare events, though, in the past were much more significant. So when they didn't have all the information, we could just go on a news source, find out exactly when it was going to be traveling, 11.15, I think it was, to 1.15. We could go out and we could look at it. But, but back in the day, when the early scientists, they didn't have this information, and, and actually these celestial spectacles provided them incredible information about our solar system. They were rare events, and they would pay special attention. They would focus their attention on these events and get an education, and they would learn, and they would gain scientific knowledge that they didn't have. In our text, we have a miraculous healing. And we have a woman being raised from the dead. They are rare events, even in Scripture. Sometimes this text, you can kind of skim by. 
just seems not that important, like the conversion of Saul. Now, that's important. Cornelius, his conversion, that's important. And this, this little section, this little section can seem unimportant, but it reveals so much. And we want to, like those early scientists, just stop for a minute and think about it. And, and give our special and focused attention to this rare event because we don't live in an age when we lack scientific knowledge. We live in an age where we lack theology. We lack truth about God. We lack truth about God the Son incarnate, and there is so much in this text. So look with me carefully, and let's see what we can learn about God the Son incarnate. There's, there's these two brief miracle accounts in the last part of Acts 9. The second one is more detailed than the first one. The first one is about a man. The second one is about a woman. So we again see this tendency of Luke, the author, he likes to highlight how God works with men and God works with women. In our culture, we have this idea, our culture has this idea that, that pushes men and women away from one another, but, but the church, the gospel, unites men and women. And Luke is recording that. And so we have this beautiful picture of him at work with a man and then a, a woman. And the church is walking in the fear of the Lord, and our text informs us exactly what that means. Number one, it means turning to the Lord. To walk in the fear of the Lord is to begin by turning to the Lord. Verse 32, Peter is going here and there. It's like he's got a, he's got a traveling ministry. He's preaching. He's visiting the churches. He's going here and there among them all. And he comes down to the saints who lived in Lydda. He's moving, moving further and further away from Jerusalem. He's moving into Gentile territory. This was a town that was about a day's journey from Jerusalem. It was on the, on the way to Joppa. And Peter came down to the saints, it says, in verse 32. So there were Jewish Christians who either came from Jerusalem. Remember when Stephen was stoned and there was a great persecution, either they, they came from Jerusalem to there, or when Philip came, they came to Christ. But there are Jewish Christians there, and there's one man named Aeneas, and he has been bedridden for eight years. He is paralyzed. We're supposed to read this, verse 33. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden, for eight years, who was paralyzed. We're supposed to read this and be saddened. Eight years bedridden. Think about it. Let's stop and focus on this. He's paralyzed. Bedridden for eight years. He's confined to his bed. He's probably a Christian. Luke explicitly tells us that Dorcas was a Christian. He doesn't explicitly say that about Aeneas, but he probably was because it says that 
that Peter went to Lydda and, and he was with the saints there. And so Aeneas was probably a Christian. And he's been bedridden for eight years. And Peter looks at him, verse 34, Aeneas in this statement, Jesus Christ heals you. So somehow the risen Lord has revealed to the apostle Peter, he heals you. Rise and make your bed. Peter didn't heal him. Jesus Christ him. The risen Christ healed this man. The sad story, bedridden for eight years. The risen Christ heals him. Peter's involved. He does take initiative. He's bold. We've seen this before. He makes a declaration. Why was he so bold? Well, Luke records in his gospel that Jesus gave authority to his apostles to cure diseases. Peter was one of the 12, and so he was one of these apostles that, that the Lord used to heal people. Apostolic healing was well known in the early church because the risen Savior was at work through them. Jesus Christ heals you through this apostle. The healing's immediate. Aeneas is told, rise and make your bed. You can care for yourself now. He's been healed. It's, the story is brief, but it's, it's a powerful miracle. And all the residents, this is hyperbole, verse 35 probably, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon, the plain of Sharon, saw him and they turned to the Lord. That's where it begins in walking in the fear of the Lord. You turn to the Lord. You turn away from your, your sins. You turn to the Lord for forgiveness, and you follow him. You acknowledge him. You are Lord. You are Savior, and you are Lord, your master. Turn to the Lord. All the residents, a significant number turned. Many unbelievers, they heard about this healing. They saw this man, and they turned to the Lord. They acknowledge his divine authority in their life. Jesus is Lord, and, and people are repenting of their sin, and they're turning to him, and he's forgiving them. Amen. Walking in the fear of the Lord means turning to him. Another idea our culture has is that this idea that Jesus is Lord and that he has a word and it's authoritative in our lives, that in our culture, there's an idea that that is unjust, even oppressive. And that's where turning to the Lord today means disagreeing with our culture. He is Lord. He has a word and we submit to it. I was in the office the other day. A young man named Marshall was there. And he greeted me very kindly. And he said he had heard that he, he and I had had a, a, a similar experience when the Lord saved us. And our, our turning to the Lord was significant. And so I enjoyed talking to him. Marshall had had a friend commit suicide a few years ago, and it was, it was very difficult, as you would imagine, for him. And it was a very dark time for him. And someone from our church, just about 10 years ago, encouraged him to contact 
Zach Varnell. I mean, who are you going to call? Zach Varnell. <laughs> to get his counsel, get his help. He was struggling. And at some point, Zach called Marshall, didn't talk to him, but left a, a voicemail on his phone almost 10 years ago. Marshall kept the voicemail. My understanding is he still has the voicemail. I mean, I've deleted all Zach's voicemails. I don't, but he kept that, yes. On, on occasion, Marshall would listen to it for encouragement. It helped him somehow. But he, he didn't turn to the Lord. He continued to live a life not governed by the fear of the Lord, and he remained very hopeless. At some point, the Lord saved Marshall, and Abe Wood, member of our church, invited him and his wife, Anna, to our forum meeting that Jake Cronin tells you about and leads. And when Marshall came to the forum meeting, he was assigned a seat. And in God's providence, his seat was right beside Zach Varnell. Zach didn't know Marshall, but Marshall knew Zach because he'd been listening to his voicemail for 10 years. <laughs> and he, he told Zach all that God had been doing in his life. And he told him about the voicemail. And the, the forum, forum built Marshall's faith, and he eagerly participated, I am told, and he and his wife Anna started going to a community group, went to the ECCK class, and they are now new members of our church. Marshall turned to the Lord. That's what it means to live in the fear of the Lord. And he should not be hopeless now, because this is what Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. This is for you, Marshall, nor stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf doesn't wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. The second thing walking in the fear of the Lord means is to kneel down and pray to the Lord. Verse 36, there wasn't Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Joppa was in Judea, but it was a very Greek city. It was far more of a Gentile city than Joppa, I'm sorry, and Lydda. The gospel is advancing now into Gentile territory. And in Joppa, Luke tells us explicitly that there was a Christian woman, a disciple there, and her name was Tabitha, which means gazelle or some sort of deer. And in Greek, her name was Dorcas. A gazelle was a metaphor for beloved in the Song of Solomon. Tabitha Dorcas, like a gazelle, is beloved. This was a very special member of the church, someone that was beloved by the church. She, she's introduced in a way that focuses on her character. It's, it's easy to see why she was beloved. She was known for acts of charity. She, she was known for showing mercy. She was a giver. Dorcas was wealthy. She was generous. She had a reputation of, of someone who did good works, who helped 
the poor, all the widows, down in verse 39, when Peter came, all the widows stood beside him weeping. They wanted him to get who this woman was. And they showed him the tunics. They showed him the garments that she had made while she was alive and in their midst and in their church. These friends, they wanted to show Peter the details of her generosity and her, her kindness. Luke wants us to see the importance of her ministry in the church. He wants us to see she cared for the needy. She cared for widows. She was a wealthy woman. She had time. She had resources, and she used them like this to do things that glorify God and helped people. David Peterson says, he's a commentator, One, once again, generosity surfaces in the narrative of Acts as a sign of the Spirit's work. And those who turn to Christ. Generosity is a sign of the Spirit. Wait a minute. Now, I know healing. I get that. That's a work of the Spirit. I know raising from the dead. That's a work of the Spirit. Listen, this generosity, this is the work of the Spirit. The church should be characterized. Remember Acts 2? All who believed were together, had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. It's characteristic of the church because the church is where the Spirit of God is at work. And he's generous and he's good. He uses people like Peter and Dorcas to make a difference in people's lives. We tend to focus on the physical healing, the raising from the dead, but we miss the generosity. It's, it's a work in those who turn to Christ in the midst of the church. Peter is an example. Isn't he a great example of ministry? So is Dorcas. We're supposed to see that she illustrates someone who is ministering in the church to need. She shows mercy. She cares. She's kind. That's what the church should be like. Even, even verse 43, when, when Peter is staying with Simon, the guy with all the dead animals laying around, that's hospitality. You're going to see it again and again in the book of Acts. It's generosity. Maybe some people didn't want to stay with Simon. Maybe Simon didn't want you to stay with him. But he was hospitable. And, and this, this is very important Role we'll see when Peter or Paul, the other disciples would go into the city to preach the gospel, somebody would host them. I, I want to pause for a minute and just say it is not uncommon for members of this church to approach the pastoral team looking for needs. Or when they hear about something that is going on in somebody's life, approaching the pastoral team, I want to help. Someone has a need, and I want to help. I, I just want you generous people to know that's the work of the Spirit. Thank you, but mainly thank Him. He's transformed you. You've turned to the Lord, and He's using you like He did Dorcas and Peter. This, this is a generous church by the grace of God. It's a sign of the Spirit's 
work. I, I pray that every faithful, sacrificial giver in this church right now is encouraged by your generosity. Verse 37, though, says, in those days, she became ill and she died. And when they washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Peter's in the region. This wonderful woman got sick and she died. And Peter is nearby. And they called for him. And we, we don't know if they thought Peter can raise her from the dead. It may have just been they wanted him to come and feel it. They wanted him to come and know what they'd lost. They washed her in preparation for her burial. It, it shows how significant she was to this church. It may have been that the church met in her house, and this was her house, and the upper room was where the church met. It was unusual for them to take a body to an upper room. They call on Peter, come without delay. He comes to them. When he arrives, they take him to this room, and, and Luke just paints a very sad picture. Can you imagine? Here's the body. Here's the friends. Here's, here's the clothing she made. Here's the stories. What a wonderful woman. Peter was a pastor. The Lord does something in pastors' hearts. He puts people in churches on their hearts. And they, pastors care. Peter cared. It's a supernatural thing. It's, it's, if, you, if it's a real pastor, man, he, he has got the people in his church on his heart. And he is affected. Peter was affected. He has a spirit-wrought love for the church. And you can, you can see it in this text. I like what he does. He puts them all outside. That's a good pastor. I love you. Get out of here. That's what Jesus did in Luke chapter 8. He had watched Jesus. Jairus' daughter needed to be raised from the dead. He put them all out. And he knelt down and prayed. That's different than what Jesus did. Peter knelt down and prayed. Walking in the fear of the Lord means you kneel down and pray. Especially when you're needing someone to be raised from the dead. Not mostly dead. I mean, fully dead. I've seen worse. No, you haven't seen worse than this one. Once again, Luke is showing us the power of prayer. Jesus didn't kneel down and pray. In John 16, he told Peter and the other apostles, until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Can you imagine the joy? Until now, you haven't asked in my name. Now you ask, and you're going to receive answers to prayer. And you're going to be... Very joyful. Peter doesn't draw attention to himself. He's not the healer. He's not the one that raises the dead. He gets down on his knees and he prays. Just remember the context. Wonderful woman, dead, friends, weeping, 
gets on his knees. That's what you do when you walk in the fear of the Lord and he prays and the Lord answers his prayer. Jesus is still at work. Turning to the body, he's, after, after he prayed, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. She saw Peter. She sat up. He brings everybody in and shows them. She's alive. He takes her hand. He cares for her. He raises her up. He calls the saints, the widows. Verse 41, presents her alive. Just like in chapter 1, Jesus, after he was raised from the dead, he presented himself alive. Dorcas, this wonderful woman, is alive. And Peter confronts everybody with this miracle. Finally, number three, walking in the fear of the Lord means we believe in the Lord. Verse 42, came known, hard to keep a lid on that. It became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. Walking in the fear of the Lord means turning to the Lord, but it also means believing in the Lord. They, they believed. What did they believe? They believed Jesus Christ heals you. They believed Jesus is God the Son, fully God, God the Son incarnate. They trusted in him. They believed he'd been raised from the dead. They trusted in him for forgiveness, for salvation. They exercised their faith. It's not automatic. We have to exercise faith. Many believed in the Lord. They showed their faith. They trusted in him, and it brought Jesus glory. The Lord is at work. He's active through Peter. He's getting ready to, for this, this breakthrough with Gentiles. And, and Peter here is just this picture of a faithful servant of the Lord. It's not exalting Peter, is it? It's, it's preparing, these miracles are preparing for what's about to take place as the gospel goes into Gentile territory. Walk in the fear of the Lord. That's, that's the message. Now, we're going to conclude today with a ministry time. We call it Second Sunday Ministry Time, but it's not the Second Sunday. So we'll call it Ministry Time today. And we're going to invite you for prayer, especially for healing, for obvious reasons. We want to in invite you to believe the Lord for healing. We want you to trust that the Lord is good and that He's powerful. And he often hears our prayers for healing. Now, in preparation for that, a couple things. Number one, we need to say that physical healing is not like forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness is more important than healing. Amen. And sometimes the Lord does not heal us. When we, when we turn to the Lord, though, he always forgives us our sins. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book on spiritual depression, says, 
if we will not learn the lessons that are presented to us positively in the Word, then God, as our Father, with the great end and object in view of perfecting us, preparing us for glory, will adopt other methods. One of the other methods which he uses is this method of chastisement. He's getting that from Hebrews 12 or discipline. This method of discipline or chastisement. Earthly parents that are worthy of the name. I didn't say it, he did. We are living in such flabby days that we can scarcely use the argument as this man, the writer of Hebrews, was able to do. But earthly parents that are worthy of the name do this. They discipline their children. They chastise their children for their own good. How does our Heavenly Father then discipline us, His children? And one way is clearly in the area of our health. So 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul wrote this. Whoever therefore, he's talking about communion in the church, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning The body eats and drinks judgment on himself. He's receiving the Lord's Supper in in an unworthy manner. And that is why, verse 30, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that there's a purpose we may not be condemned along with the world. There were some people who were sick and ill, according to the Apostle Paul, because God had allowed this. He had sent this in order to teach them and train them. This is a a method we know that God uses because that's not the only place in Scripture that we see it. Those who say that it is never God's will that any of us should be sick or weak are simply denying the Scriptures. But we also must not say that every sickness is punishment sent by God. That's not true. The truth is that at times God uses sickness in order to discipline His children for their good. But it isn't true of every illness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about his thorns. So, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn, a famous thorn, was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. He had these great revelations three times. I prayed, I pleaded with the Lord about this. That this thorn, whatever it was, should leave me. But he said to me, the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, says Paul, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. The most likely explanation for the thorn 
is sickness, but in, in the end, only God knows. There's a lot of debate about it. Only God knows what the affliction was. But this thorn in the flesh was given for him. It was not pleasant. He asked three times for the Lord to remove it, but it was given for him, and it had a good purpose to prevent him from exalting himself and being resisted then, because God resists the proud, prevent him from being resisted by God. It was a benefit for Paul. Commenting on this, one commentator says, but how can God be at work and indeed give to Paul through Satan and Satan's angel? How does God work good through suffering and evil? That is a $64,000 question. Paul doesn't answer the endless questions that might be raised at this point, yet here at the very start of his account, he implicitly provides an answer that is more than sufficient for the final questions of the human heart. God uses evil, even Satan himself, for Paul's good. Who can explain this wonder? Not you. Not me. Is there any storyline that we might draw that can explore its depths? There is. It's the story of Christ's cross being replayed in Christ's apostle. Paul himself is giving an account of it. Yet he can't, he can't see the bottom of it. Just like you and me. He can't see it all. He doesn't, can't fathom it all. He can't figure it out. Indeed, he prays three times. He resists the evil that has come to him by the only means available, prayer. But in the end, this was from the Lord. It's God's action. He allows sickness sometimes, sometimes illness, to happen for our good. There's plenty of testimonies in this room that would confirm this. It's for our good. God's will is more important than the health of our body. When we need discipline, God will deal with us and he may allow sickness in order to bring great good to our lives. But, secondly, you might be saying, well, I'm not really inspired right now to come down and be prayed for for healing. We, we can and should pray for healing, even with all that said. Our text clearly reveals that God can and does heal people. And one thing I think the Lord wants to do this morning is build our faith for healing. We need to have faith that he's the source of our blessing. He's our hope. He alone. That's why faith glorifies him because it says that he's our source of good. And, and G, that's why Jesus emphasized faith so often. It points us away from ourselves, from our resources to him. It moves us away from our own power, our own self-sufficiency, and it, it moves us towards him. Faith is confidence in him, confidence in his word, confidence in his character. It doesn't mean we demand things from God. It's actually an expression of self 
denial. We're denying that we have it all ourselves. We, we confess our weakness. We boast like Paul about our weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in us. That's faith. If we want to pray for someone to be healed, we need to have faith that God can heal. And God does heal today. I, I see nothing in Scripture that says he has stopped healing today. I see nothing in Scripture about that. Jesus seemed in, in the Scriptures to delight in healing people. We just read this account. I don't think it's an accident. If you read that and you're paralyzed, if you read that and, and you have an illness, you're, you're going to want to pray. Why would the Lord put that in the word and not allow us to pray or encourage our prayers for healing? Jesus would often say, be it done to you according to your faith. Because that faith pleases the Lord. And it pleases him when we believe, Lord, you're able, not demanding. Job was right. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Man, I've had to quote that verse a lot. Some of you much more and for much more serious reasons. He, he delights in our confidence. He delights in our faith. We need to have faith when we pray for healing that he's good and he blesses his children. We need to know that he has a heart to heal us, to help us when we're weak and needy. Remember Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Healing shows us the love of God. Jesus Christ heals you. The Lord, the master. And we want to pray today and ask for his mercy. So let me ask the prayer teams to come. I'm going to invite you to come. You can come to be prayed for anything, obviously healing, but anything. If you're going just through a difficult time, you want us to pray. We have these teams. We're just going to have some ministry time. We trust the God, the Holy Spirit is present in our midst and he will comfort you and give you peace and encourage you. And and physically heal people at times. We want to pray for that. So please stand. We're going to return to sing, singing. We want to invite you down, and I'm going to pray and ask for the Lord's blessing. Father, thank you for your word. We trust in you, Lord. This, this scripture builds our faith. And Lord, I pray that you would comfort and encourage and answer the prayers of your people this morning for your glory alone. In Jesus' name. You've been listening to a message given by Bill Kittrell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.